Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. Hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you guys doing? So good. Good to see you guys. Good to see everybody here, everybody online. Good to see you, whether you're uh, watching live or you're going to be watching it at some time in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So, um, yeah, cool. And so, uh, we're in the book of uh, Matthew still. Still. Uh, and... Uh, and these guys are going to teach us some great stuff. Uh, before that, though, Cody, um, I was looking for a Devo this morning oh. from the church, mm-hmm. and it never came. Mm. Did you think they lost my... I got up, and I was, like, thirsty for the Word of God. Yeah, you like, can still read the Bible without the Daily Devo if you want. Wanting to know about the second coming of Christ. Yeah, well, it was a long weekend, and I forgot. I Cody grief because he was up today and he forgot to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, sorry so about that. So you got to make up for it tonight. You better have some wisdom. Ooh. You better bring something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, all yeah. right. Well, glad you guys are here. We're going to have fun. Uh, Autumn, are you yes, up first? Yes, I am. Let's do it. Always. Oh, don't forget to tell them, uh, text in your messages, uh, your messages. Questions, questions, messages, comments. Uh, on any of your all platforms, platforms and, and text messaging and, and all that kind of good stuff. And feel pretty Cody, for forgetting his deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, can I, can I tell you one thing? You yeah. usually yeah. ask us what we're excited about today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what are you excited about today? Um, USC is, uh-huh. is out of the whole basketball thing. Oh, okay, okay. And UCLA is still in it. Okay, all right. How's Biola doing? <laughs> Biola. <laughs> is there, is that not? They're doing really well. care about Yeah, do you, well? well. All right. Theologically, they're doing great, by the way. (laughs) Okay. Hi. So tonight, we have a lot to go over. So we are going from chapter 19 through chapter 25. And for those of you who I I was telling Matt before this all happened, uh, or before this all started, I said, you know, for the people who think that like... That Jesus, he was just a nice guy. Like he just said nice things and all that kind of stuff. I would challenge them to read our passages for tonight because Jesus gets in people's business and he is he it's really hard to see him in a nice night nice light after our readings tonight. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. Uh, the good thing about, even though there's so many chapters that we're cov- covering, they actually break down pretty clearly. So for me, at least, I like to kind of organize them in my head, and they seem to break down nicely, and so they're, they're kind of organized for me. So this section is the fifth in um, the narrative discourse pattern that we see in Matthew. So it's the fifth and last one of those, and it breaks up into three sections, okay? So there's two narrative sections, and then one discourse section. So the first narrative section, and they're all divided by location, okay? So the first section happens as Jesus is on the road traveling to Jerusalem. The second section happens in Jerusalem, and the third section happens on the Mount of Olives, okay? So you can kind of know where you are in the discourse based off of um, kind of the location that it, it gives you clues as you're reading. So the first part, so part one, is the, the part one of the narrative section. 
The location is on the the road, and Jesus has a role in this section, and his role is the same role that we've kind of been seeing him all through Matthew so far. He is the teacher still. He's kind of, he's playing that role of the teacher, the healer. He's, He's preaching and teaching still, and these are in chapters 19 through 20. The second part is another narrative section, and this one, Jesus is in Jerusalem, But his role is going to drastically change. In this section, Jesus is going to take the role of king and prophet, okay? And so that's where all the mean Jesus words start coming out as the role of, of king and prophet. And that's chapters 21 through 23. And then part number three is the discourse, the last great discourse in Matthew. And its location is on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus' role in this section is going to kind of shift again. He's still going to be the king. I mean, in all of this, he's still a teacher. He's still a king and a prophet. But in this one, we're going to see Jesus, the righteous judge, start to appear. And this is chapters 24 through 25. So jumping into the first section, um, what we see is, you guys, if you remember, everyone loved my world upside down graphic. Um, we see the world upside down come back into play, okay? So what we see in this section, chapters 19 and 20, is we see kind of the great divide between um, what the world kind of values, the rules that govern the world, and the rules that govern the kingdom, okay? And in this whole section, just kind of think of everything that's in this section is Jesus' final re-education of his disciples. This is his final, like, words that he gets to say. My final teachings, I'm, I'm getting it all out there. And so in the rest of Matthew, you've kind of seen, like, if you have a red letter Bible, you've kind of seen, like, black for, like, you know, just the description, and then the red for Jesus' words. They've been kind of balanced. In this section, it's almost all red. (laughs) Like Jesus has a lot to say. It's kind of like Doyle when he gets to the end of a sermon and he's like, ah, I've got 17 points and I've only covered two. That's okay, I'll just talk faster. That's what, this is what Jesus is doing. This is the end of his sermon and he is getting it all in there. Um, Okay, so we have kind of the two sides. We have the world side and the kingdom side. And we have a few different sections in, this, in the first part of, of chapters 19 and 20. So the first thing that Jesus dives into is he dives into some teachings on divorce. And basically, I'm, I'm going to summarize a lot tonight because we have so much to get through. But basically, this, his teaching on divorce says that in the world, we are looking for rules. We are looking for um, how kind of close we can get to the line. Like, what, what, are the, what are the rules and how close can I get to those boundaries? What, what do I have to do? What's the minimum that I have to do to avoid evil? And what Jesus says in this whole section, he's going to say it down here at the end, is he basically says, not so with you. This is not the way it is supposed to be with my disciples. Because in the kingdom values, Instead of just looking for rules and things that we can avoid evil, we are going back to the first principles. And he looks at divorce as a specific for this. He says, it's not, okay, what are the rules that you can do so that you can say, oh, good, I can get a divorce. It's look at what God said about what it means to be human and what it means to be married and what marriage symbolizes. Look at that and pursue that. 
Try to discern, pursue what, what is best, God's best in this world. And don't just look for the way that you can get out of things. And in that section, there's kind of a weird thing about eunuchs and all that kind of stuff, but I'm just going to summarize it with saying marriage is God's best and celibacy is also God's best. Both of those things are God's best. Then the next section that we get into kind of has two contrasting stories. So one is who is worthy in the kingdom? So it's the story of Jesus holding up, again, a child as um, kind of the epitome of, of who is good and, and worthy and acceptable in the kingdom. And then we see another person who is contrasted with the child, and that's the rich young ruler. And so in this section, we look at the worthy one is, is a child, somebody who follows God with their whole, wholeheartedly. And then we see this rich young ruler who really paradoxically is somebody that the world would look at and even biblical people would look at and say, well, God has blessed him. He's got money. He's got all of these things. And Jesus says, those are not the things that I value. And I put little exclamation points here because this really shocks the disciples. Like this is a shocking thing to him um, that even this rich young ruler and all the good things that he's done that he, um, his works aren't going to be what qualifies him for the kingdom, that it's his heart that is, is what God is looking at. And then the last section, um, kind of before we get to the end of this part, um, talks about the, um, the parable of the workers where the, you know, there's one set of workers that comes at the beginning of the day and they end up getting paid the same as the people who came at the end of the day, um, which is you know, kind of a big... Uh, it's kind of a big hyperbole parable. It's one of those ones that we read and we're like, this is so stupid. Like, who would act this way? Who would do this? Not fair. It doesn't seem fair. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Because um, he, what he's pointing out is that reward in the kingdom of heaven is never something that we earn. And we constantly are convincing ourselves that we get to earn that reward, that somehow we deserve the rewards that, that God is holding out to us. And what Jesus is saying in this section is, it, no, it's all grace. It's nothing you could ever earn. And God gets to give out his grace however he wants it. And you should just be blessed to have it. So he ends this little section with another prediction, the third and final prediction of his death. Um, and it's very detailed. He's close to Jerusalem, and so he kind of gives the disciples the most detail that he's going to give them on his death. And this immediately leads into, if you remember last week, we talked about Jesus basically would predict his death, and then the disciples' response to it was, okay, great, who gets to be in charge when you leave? Um, and, and they do the same thing again. They, they immediately go back to their what seems to be their primary concern, which is, who gets to be the, the leader? Who gets to be in charge? Who is the greatest? And so he goes into kind of more explicitly call out some of this stuff. This is our concerns on this side of the board in the world, and this is kingdom concerns on this side of the world. And so he explicitly, at the end of chapter 20, lays out um, what our concerns are. Our concerns are being number one, getting the gold medal, being the ones that are in charge, being the leader. And I put a star next to this, and the reason that I did is because the disciples keep coming back to this. They don't ask multiple questions about 
you know, the reward. They don't ask multiple questions about all these things, but they, they ask five different times in Matthew. Maybe not five. That might be exaggeration. I don't know exactly how many numbers. But they ask over and over and over again this whole, this idea of the hierarchy and priority in the kingdom. It is important to them. And I think that that's probably an indication that it's important to us. We are very, it is important to us where we stand um, in the kingdom. And, 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 and God says, not so with you. <laughs> that is not the way it works in the kingdom. He says, kingdom concerns, you should be looking for a medal that says last on it. Last place. That's what you're looking for. You are looking, he uses the word slave. You are looking to be a slave of all. That is your role in the kingdom. And if you have achieved that role here on earth, you should know you're in the right spot. Um, that is your goal. The end of this section, um, Jesus kind of summarizes that he has come to be a servant and a ransom. And then he's going to go into Jerusalem and be those things. Um, we have this really random, I, I just think it's the most random thing. And I thought Cody did, you did an excellent job on your sermon this weekend, by the way. I well, thought it was really good. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. But he... Uh, <laughs> He, he explained this to me, uh, that I thought it was good. There's this just, like, all this makes sense. And then we have the story of Jesus healing two blind men. I'm like, we've already seen them him heal two blind, two blind men, like, exactly the same way. Right at the beginning, um, in disc, right before Discourse 1, he healed two blind men. It's like, we've already seen it. Um, and what the distinction is, is if you want to contrast these two stories, um, 930, and then this one is in 20, 29 through 34. The main difference between these two things is both of the blind men call Jesus son of David. But in chapter 9, Jesus says, shh, quiet down. In chapter 20, Jesus says, yep, go for it. It's time. It's time for that title, son of David, which we're going to go into, it's time for that to be proclaimed. Okay, so the time has come for Jesus to step into his role as the king okay so he's going to step into his role as the king and he's going to do this by entering jerusalem okay so now this is my favorite part of this section because it is so organized so matthew there's this there's this show on youtube that kind of talks about the it's like a reenactment of the disciples and they cast matthew as somebody who's like they think he might be on the spectrum because he is like so focused on numbers and patterns and all that stuff. And you really see it in this section. So what we have in this section is we have groups of three. So we have three symbolic gestures that Jesus makes. We have three parables that he tells. And then he has three questions that the, the Pharisees are going to ask to Jesus. Okay, so the three symbolic gestures are the triumphal entry. Uh, him going into the temple and overturning the money tables, and then him withering the fig tree, okay? I can go into those, but I, what I'm going to, Cody did a good job of covering them all on Sunday. So what I'm going to tell you is all three of those symbols, so one, they are, he, Jesus is acting the way an Old Testament prophet would act. They did crazy things. Was it uh, Isaiah, which was the prophet that had to walk around Jerusalem naked for a year? I think it was Isaiah. Isaiah had to walk around. Is that why you named one of your kids Isaac? Isaiah, I don't Isaac. have an Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaac. Isaac. Uh, I, think I was thinking Isaac for some man, reason. How I, long have I worked here? Huh? <laughs> you don't know my kids' names. 
So what? What about? I was. The, I was thinking. Kid's name Josiah. I was thinking. I. I was thinking Isaac. I don't. I don't know why. For some reason. Different part of the Bible. Good joke. He's sitting right there and he's yeah. fully dressed. So we're good. Yeah. Look yeah. at him. He's. He's so sad. He's so sad. Okay. Mm. Anyway. Um, Prophets did wacky things. They did. Uh, they made these big symbolic gestures so that they would stick in people's minds. If you see a prophet walking around a city naked for a year, you're going to understand the message that he's delivering. And so Jesus doing these things, all of them were very symbolic gestures, and they are going to stick in people's heads. So him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, David rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Solomon rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, in the prophecy that Abraham makes over the 12 tribes, he says that the king is going to ride into Jerusalem on the donkey. So this is a claim to kingship, what he is doing. And it's a humble kingship, but it is kingship. It's a claim to Israelite kingship that he's doing in the triumphal entry. Him going into the temple and turning over the, the, the table. Who has the right to change anything in the temple? It has been dictated for years by law. You know, people have taken it away from what God intended. And so God comes back into the temple and cleans it up. Jesus is claiming that he has the right to change things in the temple. And then he comes in and he withers the fig tree as a sign against the leadership of, of the time. And this is another claim to kingship and to the authority to change things. Okay, so three symbolic gestures. The next thing is we have these three parables, okay? The parables, there's a lot of parables in this one. So we have the parable of the uh, two sons, the evil farmers, and the wedding banquet. And I'm going to summarize these as these are Jesus's parables, and they are directed at the religious leaders, and he is acting as God and as a prophet of God. Um, and so it's basically to the leaders from God, you fail. You get an F at everything that I have told you to do. You get an F, and I am going to replace you. Um, all of Everything that you have done, you don't get any more chances. You're done with it, and I am going to replace you with people who are actually going to bear my fruit because you have not been bearing my fruit. This is mean Jesus, okay? And their response to this, to this in, um, in chapter 22 is we need to arrest him. <laughs> we need to arrest this guy. He is making them mad. They are done. But they can't arrest him because the crowd loves him. They think that he is fantastic and awesome. They have been suffering under these oppressive leaders who aren't producing fruit for a long time. So Jesus goes on, and the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders decide, okay, we need to turn the crowd against Jesus. And so the way they're going to do this is they ask him three hostile questions. And the questions, basically, one of them is about politics. That's the one about taxes. And then two are about theology. And, and all of these questions are very divisive. They're the kinds of questions like, I'm not even going to say them, but there are so many divisive questions I could ask you right now about our political world, but all of them would divide the room, okay? And so the, that's what all of these questions are. And Jesus answers all of them. He just cuts to the heart of what the Pharisees are asking. And he then, at the end of these, actually asks the Pharisees a question of his own. He has one counter question, and his question is about the Messiah. And it's kind of a rhetorical question, but what it shows is that what he points out with this question is that 
The Pharisees and the religious leaders have no idea who the Messiah is. They don't even understand what the Old Testament has said about the Messiah. And Jesus leaves the implication, you're missing it. I am the Messiah and I'm standing right here and you're missing it. Even though you've spent your whole life studying, you have, you're blind and you can't see it. Maybe that's why he had the blind people down there. Um, again, the crowd loves it. They're so happy. The Pharisees have failed to turn the crowd against Jesus. Um, and the Pharisees, this is my little symbol for the Pharisees' response here, they are silent. They can't say anything back. They, have, they, have not, they, they don't even dare to ask him any more questions. And then Jesus has, he's on a roll. He's won the crowd over. He has some final words. Um, and he has two sets of final words. One is to the people, and one is to the scribes and Pharisees. But all of the words are about the scribes and Pharisees. And they're basically warning. Warning um, these scribes and Pharisees. He says to the people, don't, pay, don't do what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. Don't follow them because they are headed off a cliff. And then he turns and he says to the scribes and Pharisees, and also this section is a very prophetic section. He's acting as a prophet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Those are like very, the words that Old Testament prophets use. Um, and he says to the, to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, woe to you because you are headed to hell. The direction that you are headed, you are headed to hell. Warning, stop it, turn around. That's what he's saying to them, okay? That's his final words. And then he moves on to section three, okay? So section three is on the Mount of Olives. And it starts out by saying, Jesus leaves the temple. And then Jesus says that the temple is going to be destroyed, okay? So when Jesus leaves the temple, like, it just really struck me this time. Acting as a prophet, there's been times in the Old Testament when God withdrew his glory from the temple. And, and this is it. Like, Jesus leaving the temple is God symbolically removing his glory from the temple, and it is going to be destroyed. And so he says it's going to be destroyed, which makes the disciples ask two questions. So this whole section is, deter is governed by the two questions that are asked in um, verse 24, verses 1, or I'm sorry, it's 24, verse 3. And so they ask two questions. One is, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And the second question, which to them is they're closely linked in their mind, um, is when will you return? Like you, you've left, when are, and, and we know you've said you're going to leave. When are you going to come back at the end of the age? So those are the two questions. Um, and I'm just going to say right now, these guys might not, dis, might not agree with me because there are many different um, interpretations of this section. This seemed to be the most clear to me, um, but it's not like a, a church splitting issue. You know, it's one of those issues that we can agree to disagree on. Um, but the way that it works is um, in chapter 24, verses 4 through 35, these are the answers to question number one. Right at the end of chapter 24, you'll see, I'm just going to point it out to you. I'm not going to go into it too much. Um, in chapter 24, verses 30 through 31, that is a parenthetical aside that is referring to the end of the age, but the rest of it 
And, and he's saying it to say, you might think it's the end of the age when the temple's being destroyed because things are going to feel so bad, but know that when I come back, the signs are going to be unmistakable, okay? So there's a parenthetical aside to referring to the end of the age, but the rest of number one, the answer to number one, is when the temple is going to be destroyed, he predicts it within this generation, which is about 40 years, and I think it happens 37 years after Jesus says this. So it happens 40 years just as it, it's already happened. The temple's been destroyed. And in this section, Jesus is basically saying, it's going to get real bad, so stand firm. Then he goes on, and the rest of this is an answer to question number two. And the disciples has asked, when will you return? When will, this, when will the temple be destroyed, and when will you return? And Jesus' answer to the first one is pretty specific. The second one is, I don't know. Nobody knows. If Jesus, so for all of those people who are prophesying that, you know, they know the date that Jesus is going to return, if Jesus doesn't know it, I don't think that there's anybody on earth right now that knows it. So Jesus did not know the date of his return. And so the next section, 2436 through 2530, basically is describing that we need to live our lives on the edge of our seat. We need to live as if every breath is our last. And, and, the, and the reality is, it could be. Whether or not Jesus comes back tomorrow or I die in a car accident tomorrow, that's, that's it. That's eternity for me. That's me stepping into eternity. And see, he says, we need to live our lives ready for eternity at a moment's notice, for eternity to happen to us at a moment's notice. And so he has three kind of sections here. Again, Matthew with his threes. Um, the first one basically says that we need to live righteously. We need to live right with God and right with people. That's how disciples live in this in-between. Um, you know, the, the already that Jesus has, has redeemed us, but the not yet that he's not coming, he hasn't come back yet. So we need to live righteously, right with God and right with people. We need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for him to come at a, a moment's notice, that we are ready. There's nothing left undone in our lives that we, that we can't wait for him to come. And then the last one is we need, this is the parable of the talents. We need to be working. Um, you know, the, the whole parable of the talents was that there were two, two servants that worked and one servant that was lazy and did nothing. And so the, the point of the parable of the talents is that we need to be working. And then the very last one that Matt is going to get into is a discussion, and this is um, 2531 through 46. It's a discussion of that day, which is the day of judgment. And so in that, we have the seat of Jesus sitting on his throne in glory, and he separates the sheep from the goats. And I was noticing when I was drawing them that they look very similar. One has horns and one has fur, but that's about the difference. But, um, but he's going sh to separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep are going to be the people that bear fruit. Um, that just naturally in their life, they don't even know it. They didn't try to go out and feed the homeless and, and you know, clothe the naked and do all that kind of stuff. It was just like they didn't even remember doing it. It was just something that naturally flowed out of who they were. And for those, Jesus says, your reward is eternal life. That's your reward. For the goats, they're the people who have no fruit. <laughs> they were the kind of people who the way that they lived their life, there was no good that came out of their life. Um, they were self-involved, self-absorbed, and they produced no fruit. And, and their destination is eternal 
punishment. And on that note, I'm going to turn it over to Matt to let him explain all of that. <laughs> all right, before we do that, we'll get to some questions. Thank you, Autumn. Um, that we had a verse that was shared. It says, then the Lord said, my servant Isaac has been walking around naked and barefoot for the last three years. <laughs> Just kidding. It, it did say Isaiah. Anyway, threw that in there for you. Okay. Um, okay. Any questions in the room first? And then uh, we did have a couple come in online. So any questions? Nothing about... Yeah. Okay. Let's go. We, we got a couple coming in here. So we're, we, got, we got a mic coming around. Yeah. We'll start here. Yeah. Hi. This is for Autumn. In that first part, Matthew 19 and so forth, um, with the disciples um, still struggling with understanding the parable of that rich man and questioning who's going to rule. Mm -hmm. it, it just seems to me that they would have, after three years, they would have been farther along in understanding where Jesus was going with stuff. I, I just was wondering if you guys had comments on that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I still struggle with it. Like we, we all, I mean, I still struggle myself, like understanding, like we look at somebody who looks good on the outside and we think surely they're the ones that should be accepted into the kingdom. And then we look at somebody who maybe doesn't have all the credit, you know, like we judge people on, on outward appearances and that's what the disciples were doing back then. And, and we still do it now. Um, I think it's, it's hard to not judge the disciples for being dum-dums um, because it seems clear that they weren't getting it. Um, but what gosh, about like, they're holding themselves up for our own, like they're the right. ones that are telling us about it. Like what about in like, what about in, in Matthew 16 where um, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and then hit, and then Jesus says, well, this wasn't, this wasn't uh, your own ideas. This was revealed to you, right? Yeah. And so how does maybe revelation play into their understanding of who Jesus is? Why don't you <laughs> go ahead? I, I, I got an A minus in eschatology. <laughs> so hmm. Maybe Matt will share with us tonight. Every question I that mean, we've been I having so really far. I really trust you because you think Isaac was the one that mm. went and did all this mm. stuff. I just so. read it. I don't know if you heard me or not, but it was in there. I did some editing, but yeah, it was in there. Um, okay, uh, any other questions? Yes, front row. Hi. Um, <laughs> I'm a little confused because when he was saying that Jesus won't even know when he's, there, he's coming back, but yet he and God are one, how could one know and not the other? I was thinking about that. Do you guys have any ideas? Matt, go ahead. What was your word you, that you used the other day? Oh, hypostatic union. Hypo, you're hyperstatic. Is that what you're, you're hyperstatic? <laughs> hypostatic union, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So it comes from Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 6 through 8. And uh, there it says that uh, even though that, that Jesus was in nature of God, he emptied himself of uh, being found in nothing, being found in the appearance of man. And so I believe that Jesus emptied himself of certain omni-properties of God, so his omniscience, to knowing all things. Obviously, he emptied himself his, his omnipresence. He wasn't everywhere at once, right? Even his omnisapience, that he's all wise. And so with talking about, is Jesus in heaven in his completed form, uh, absolutely knows when he's coming back, but he did limit himself um, uh, while he was, while he was in, incarnate, while he was walking uh, along this earth. And so that, that even, the Bible even says that he grew in wisdom and stature, meaning that, that even he was, was acquiring knowledge and things. And so uh, we do believe, and the, the appropriate view is that now in heaven, he has an absolute time and date, um, but while he was here on earth, he, he did empty himself of certain uh, omni-properties. So would like an easier way to think about this be like, 
when Jesus was five, he had the understanding of a five-year-old. And so when he was 33, he had the understanding of a 33-year-old. Yeah, like, yeah I don't think thing. he like knew what was going on. And like, 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 like God in his omniscience knows like where every dust particle lands on earth. I don't think like while he was walking, he was that aware and conscious of like dust falling on Pluto, you know, but God in heaven is, you know. Um, but while he was walking here on earth, yeah, I, I think that absolutely he, he limited his cognitive ability, I guess you would say. Okay. All right. Any other questions from here? I got, let me jump to one online real quick. Okay. Uh, one online uh, was asking, will there be a hierarchy in heaven? I would assume so. Let's get, Autumn, why don't you go ahead and take this one for us real quick again? Um, I think that it's clear, like, God has said that people will have roles in heaven. Like, he is given, I mean, he says that the disciples are going to be pillars in the temple and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think that us, that we can put our idea of what a hierarchy is, uh, that we can overlay that. Um, and so it's clear that it's something very, very different than what we, what we know. I heard a really good analogy, and it was um, comparing what a baby knows, like a baby that's in utero, what they know versus what they know, you know, 10 minutes before birth, 10 minutes after birth. Um, they were talking about like, okay, think about what their lungs were doing 10 minutes before birth. Like they were, they were pumping fluid. <laughs> you know, they had, they were like this very important body part that, that it wasn't really very useful and it was pumping fluid. And 10 minutes later, they were breathing air. <laughs> they were doing something completely different. And 10 minutes before birth, they had this in incredibly important body part that's called an umbilical cord that if it was pinched or wrapped around their neck like it was around all of my boys, um, that they, they could die. They could have died. And five seconds after they're born, it's useless. We cut it off. You know, it's gone. And so to try to explain to a baby in, in utero, like, what life in heaven is going to be like, it's just useless. Like they're not, or I mean, the real life is, and so that's kind of like us when we think about what's going to be in heaven. Like, yeah, there's going to be some parts of us that cross over, but they're going to be so different that it's, it's kind of beyond our comprehension. But I do think that. Um, Did that happen to your middle child, Isaiah? <laughs> <laughs> All three of oh, my children. Wow. Okay. Um, you had an illustration that you used growing up. Do you remember the the uh, orchestra and different? Um... Let's see if this is it. I don't remember it, but I can I can go where you. I think you were going with that. Okay. The, uh, so all members of the orchestra are equal, and yet somebody has to direct it. Somebody has to. No, that's not it. Thing. What is it? Is it the appreciation? <laughs> one? Yeah, what yeah. Is, it? is that the appreciation one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So like uh, like your mom Connie, right? Like understands music, and so when she hears. Uh, someone play the piano or the guitar, right? Her, her uh, understanding uh, the wisdom and discernment of the intricacies of that um, instrument allow her a greater appreciation, right? And me and my ignorance, when I hear someone like play the piano, I go like, that's really cool, but I don't, I don't have an appreciation of the beauty of what's truly happening there. And so the, the idea is there is no tears of heaven, like Mormons believe, which I don't believe is biblical, but when we get to heaven, those who have more faithfully followed in here have a greater appreciation when we see them there. No, I never used that illustration. Never? I don't think so. Oh. I don't think so. You should have taken credit for it, it's though. A good that one. would have been. Is that C.S. Lewis? Did that one? You and C.S. Lewis, I get you guys confused a lot. About the same age. Yeah, they both yeah. wear glasses. Yeah, yeah, about, yeah. About the same age. Yeah. 
But you know what? Uh, if you want further resources on um, this topic, one of the people that I've enjoyed reading is N.T. Wright, and um, he talks about this idea that um, heaven is not our final kind of uh, destination, that there is life after life after death. And he talks about the new creation, heaven and earth, and new responsibilities, and how everything will be made new. And so it's, um, it goes from this ethereal kind of idea where we're in heaven, whatever that looks like, to no, we're within creation still, but the creation has been made new, and we have new responsibilities and, and gifts and things like that. So cool resource if you want to check that out. Okay, uh, any other questions that we have in, in the house? Okay, let me just check real quick. All right, Matt, are you ready to go? Ready to party. Let's do it. All right. All right, so uh, I'm going to open with a disclaimer, uh, and that is that uh, what I'm about to teach, the two questions I'm going to journey through, do have the capacity uh, to be really offensive because it's a hard teaching of Jesus's, and, uh, and so uh, it may be a personal teaching. And so uh, I want to say up front, everything I'm about to say, I'm going to say in love, and I want to blanket it in, in, in love and forgiveness because we have a God that, that is of love and one that does forgive. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is an important topic for us to kind of be journeying through. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 3. And as always, I, uh, I'm in the ESV. And so, um, yeah, question number one is this right here. What does the Bible teach about divorce? Follow with me, verse 3. It says this. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him. I want you to highlight that if you have your Bibles. By asking, is it lawful, highlight that word, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, maybe not so much today, but definitely in Jesus' day, uh, Divorce was very provocative. It was a very controversial statement. In fact, ancient Jews had a very high view of marriage while simultaneously having a very low view of women, which doesn't really make sense, right? And so in uh, uh, Jesus' day, there's really two schools of thought on divorce. One comes from a rabbi that was in, if I believe, about 50 years before the birth of Christ, uh, Rabbi Shammai. And he had a really unpopular view that was uh, really taught, and the Pharisees adhered to this view. And it was, uh, I'm sorry, they did not adhere to this view. And it was a very unpopular view because it was very strict. Didn't really uh, allow many permissions uh, for divorce. There was another guy, his name was Rabbi Hillel. It was a really popular view um, because it was uh, lenient. It allowed lots of permissions uh, to get divorced. Uh, some pretty silly ones we'll talk about in a second. Now, the more popular view, uh, the one that the Pharisees adhered to, in the ancient world, the Pharisees, in this view, made men view women almost as property. And so in the same sense that... Uh, a husband would own goats or sheep, uh, he would own uh, his husband or her, his wife in the very same uh, way. So in this view, on no account could she leave him, but on any account, he could leave her whenever he pleased. In fact, the rabbi literally taught that a man could leave his wife if she raised his voice and others heard, uh, if, he, if she burnt his dinner, or if he found, and this is terrible, a woman that he thought was more alluring or was, was prettier. Now, this all comes from a, a hermeneutical error or uh, a lack of a true understanding of what comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where Moses says this, and I'll read it slowly because you probably don't have it in front of you. It says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So the question is, what, what establishes uncleanliness? I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to that in a, in a little bit later. Now, another thing I want us to see here is the Pharisees, they're, in this moment, they're actually trying to corner Jesus. They're trying to get him into a, a corner because if he affirms the stricter teaching that views women as equal to men, uh, 
and it doesn't really allow him any permissions for divorce, then he's going to be seen as unpopular. By the way, that's exactly what the Pharisees want. They want him to be seen as unpopular in front of the multitude and so that people wouldn't follow him because people wanted the ability for an easy divorce. And what, what I've learned over the years as I look through the words of Jesus, if you want soft words from pastors, you're going to develop a hard heart towards God. And, that, that, and he's about to say some pretty challenging things. I want you to follow in verse 4 with me. He says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He made them. So Jesus does something interesting here. He points not to the two rabbis. He's not interested in having a conversation about these rabbis that, that lived uh, uh, 50 and 100 years before he did, about these rabbinical codes. Rather, he actually points them to Moses in Deuteronomy. He points them back to Scripture to talk about what was written by Moses and finally what was created by God in the garden. Now, he does all of this. He does all this to point them, number one, to the very first marriage for its original and intended purpose. It had an intended design. Follow with me in verse 5 and 6. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become, if you have your Bibles, highlight one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, for, for our conversation today, the most important word for you uh, in our discussion is one flesh. In the Hebrew, it's the word akkad. And it means fused together at the deepest levels. Literally, it means for your souls to be united together. It means to be, uh, yeah, fused together at the deepest parts. Now, in God's eyes, um, marriage is where two separate individuals come together and they become whole. They become one, right? They become united, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And in those moments, the Bible says that, that you now are one entity before God. Now, his point is, and in the mind of uh, uh, the ancient hearers of this, the image that would have came to mind is, is you would never divide up your physical body. You know, you'd never chop off your fingers or your toes or your arms. That, that, that would be silly, right? You would never, you'd never harm yourself in that type of way. And so why would you enthusiastically advocate for divorce? Because in God's eyes, it's, it's almost the very same thing. He continues in verse 7, says this. They said to him, why then did Moses, if you have your Bibles, highlight command, one to give a certificate of divorce, you almost hear their tone in this, and send her away. So without knowing it, the Pharisees are actually adding into God's word. It's called eisegesis. Now, nowhere in Deuteronomy, nowhere does it say uh, that God demands or commands divorce where there is uncleanliness. Rather, he permits it, and that's a huge difference there. The Pharisees incorrectly thought that Moses, in some sense, was supporting, advocating uh, that the people would get uh, divorced, but rather he was not. He was controlling it by giving it certain allowances, very strict allowances. He continues, Jesus, in verse 8, he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So Jesus is saying, look, the ideal is, is never, is never divorce, but because of a very specific type of sin, We'll talk about that in a second. I will allow it when the ideal is now unobtainable because of someone's sinful behavior. Um, and so the question is, what, what is the specific type of sin? Or uh, what establishes uncleanliness that permits divorce in God's eyes? And uh, thankfully, in verse 9, Jesus gives us an answer. He says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for highlights sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus interprets the meaning of the Hebrew word for uncleanliness with the Greek word pornea, is where we get the English word uh, porn. But really, its best understanding is any type of sexual immorality. And the point is, divorce is justified, not demanded, nor even advocated for when an act of sexual immorality is committed. But over and over in Scripture, the goal in any type of marriage should be reconciliation, right? It should always be reconciliation. We know this because in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul wrote this. If anyone is caught in any trespass, any sin, any sexual immorality, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And so the point, right, the point is restoration, reconciliation. That should always be the heart uh, of a marriage relationship. 
We know this because in Malachi 2.16, God says some pretty intense things about divorce. He says this, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, if possible, and here's the point, through the hard work of forgiveness, counseling, talking with your pastor, and working through a process of restoration, God's first principle is for the couple to stay together. Now, there is another uh, marriage exemption clause in Scripture. Uh, Some theologians call it the Pauline privilege, and it's the abandonment of an unbeliever. It comes from 1 Corinthians 7.15. It says this, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if uh, an unbelieving wife or husband decides to dissolve the marriage, um, Paul is saying that, it, that under certain circumstances, it's biblically valid. And so your next question is a good question because I can hear it. The question is this, what about abuse? What about some type of mistreatment? What about an emotional type of abandonment? And I'll be honest, the Bible is silent on that issue. But we need to understand that abuse is contrary to everything that is godly and abuse should be tolerated by no one. But I'll be honest, I'm hesitant on, on, on giving a blanketed answer to this question because the Bible isn't really super clear and I don't want to add anything uh, in the scripture that isn't really there. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul said, learn, learn by us not to go beyond what is written. In other words, don't do the exact same thing the Pharisees were trying to do, right? Uh, change God's words to justify doing things that maybe, maybe you want to do. Now, here's what I will say on this, and maybe Doyle, Cody, and Autumn can provide a little more clarity if I'm, if I'm too foggy for you, is uh, I want you to know that God does not want you to remain in a situation of abuse in any sense of the way. It is not God's will for you to, be, uh, for you to accept physical or psychological abuse in any sense of the way. And so my encouragement is to leave the situation. Find someone that would help. Talk with, talk with a pastor, and if needed, involve the law, uh, law enforcement uh, immediately if you find yourself in a situation like that. And so I say all that to tell you this, that marriage is an institution created by God for two people to become united before God for life. Last thing I'll say on this is that the marriage relationship is meant to reflect God's forever love for his people. And that's why the commitment is supposed to be lifelong. Now, I know you have tons of questions and and, and feel free to to text those in, but let's go to our next um, question. Question number two, is hell really necessary? Over the last um, week or so, when you were reading Matthew 19 uh, through uh, 25, there were some kind of questions you probably had about hell because it talks about the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and it talks about this eternal lake and eternal uh, punishment. And so if you were like me, you probably had some questions. What we're not going to do is go through all of the times that it talks about it in those uh, five or six uh, chapters. Um, I'm going to give you one in the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 41. It says this, Then he would say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So uh, a while back, um, many years back, like in 2010, um, back when I was in high school, graduated in 2011, uh, I remember Cody threw an event where we had, he was the high school pastor at the time, with the goal of it, we were supposed to invite some friends who were unbelievers and uh, to have some conversations about things that really mattered. Now, hell is, isn't a topic that obviously comes up at a high school lunch during your, you know, your, your lunch period, right? That's not something you guys like, have you heard of hell? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't come up, right? And so this night was specific around having kind of some challenging conversations, but yet doing it with a soft and loving and malleable um, heart. And so I brought my buddy, and I just asked, hey, well, this is what we believe about heaven and hell. Like, what do you believe? And so he started to say that, you know, he believes that he doesn't believe in a heaven. He does believe in a hell, but only good people get to go to heaven. So I was asking him, what does it mean to be good? And he was giving me a handful of different definitions, and he could pick a few people who were probably definitely going to hell, and it was the big ones like Hitler and, you know, people like that. And uh, I realized as he continued to explain his beliefs that they were completely irrational and completely uh, logically inconsistent. And the more that I began to look and sit with them, I realized that he was having a difficult time explaining and articulating what he believed because he was trying to soften the blow of hell, right? He was trying to soften the blow of it. He had a really difficult time wrapping his mind around this idea of eternal hell, right? Separation from God, even more difficult time admitting that 
man, there are some people that, that in this world that may actually go there. And I resonate with that. And I hope you resonate with that, right? Because the Bible talks about hell as a horrific, terrible type of place. And in our minds, in our brains, we're probably not big fans of people we know, people we love, people on this earth going there. And a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of speaking in Maine, and I talked uh, on the latter half of my sermon about this idea of heaven and this idea of hell, and there's one way to go to heaven. What I guess I want to communicate here is that as long as hell is a reality, we must care for the lost people. We must care for lost people. That is the, the, the focus of the church, right? It's an organization implanted by God that, design, that is purposely designed not for its members, but for the people who are not here yet. Luke chapter 15, so much of it talks about God cares about lost people. That's like the focus of his heart, right? And so there's two questions that we're going to journey through quickly today. The first is the, the actual question, is hell really necessary? And the answer to that question is yes, because if there is no hell, then God isn't holy and that God isn't just. Hell means that God takes sin super seriously. Now, to say that God is just, when, we, when the theologians say that, what they are saying is that he is morally perfect and he is a perfect judge. That we get our standard of justice from his perfect sense of justice because he himself is a judge. Now, I'm going to give you a, 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 an analogy that's kind of graphic, but it will prove the point. Imagine that you got home today and you realize that maybe someone murdered your neighbor's family or even, even maybe your family. And so you get there and, and you, have, you almost have DNA, DNA. You see the person running away from the house with the, with the weapon. Uh, you have cameras. They have DNA evidence that this is the person that committed this crime against you. So some weeks, days, or, or months pass, and you see this person in court. And uh, the, the lawyers get up there, and they detail almost with, 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 with the most certainty they possibly could under the law that this person committed this crime. And so the jury, the judge, believes that this person committed this crime. And all of a sudden, they stand up, turn over to the person that has committed this offense against you. And the judge says, all right, you're free to go. Now, the question would be, is that just? Is that morally right? And the answer is no, of course not, right? Because he has taken something from you. He has broken the law, and he deserves a punishment. See, God acts in the very same way. We have deviated. We have broken the law, and therefore we deserve a punishment. Next question is, the punishment worth the crime? I mean, hell is, hell is for eternity, right? The crime is rebellion. Rebellion, biblically speaking, is sin. It's to have a sin nature. Let me give you two thoughts on why uh, the punishment of hell fits the crime. Number one, kind of a philosophical one. Um, it's to sin against a maximally great being means to incur a maximally great punishment. I'll say it one more time. To sin against the maximally great being means to incur a maximally great punishment. I'm going to give you another silly illustration because I'm a youth pastor and I use illustrations. So imagine, uh, I don't know, you, I said something you didn't like today. And so later on, like you see me walking around, somebody just punched me in the face. You're probably going to get in some trouble. Depending on the day, I may hit you back, right? Imagine the exact, the exact same scenario, but instead of punching me, you punch the president of the United States. Well, your, your consequence is going to be probably a little bit different. You're probably going to like Guantanamo Bay, right? It's going to be a little bit different than if you punched me in the face. Here's the point. It's important to know that who you sin against dictates the punishment that you get. Who you sin against dictates the type of punishment that you will get. God is infinitely great. Therefore, the punishment of sinning against him is infinitely great in nature as well. Last thing we'll say on this is um, God's purpose is not torture, but protection. God contains the destructive power of sin to protect the flourishing of his family. Uh, years and years ago, back when I was in junior high, um, I had a group of friends that used to like toilet paper each other, like all of each other's houses. And uh, one day, two o'clock in the morning, I guess it was my, my turn. They were, they were toilet papering my house. And so uh, there was some, like banging on the window. They were like duct taping uh, uh, like a bench to our front door. I mean, they were creative. <laughs> it was insane. And uh, my dad thought, he was a police officer, uh, that someone was breaking in, into our house. 
And so my dad always had this kind of ritual he did every single night. He'd go over, shut all the windows, lock all the doors. It was like a thing. Uh, It was almost as if, because he was a police officer, he saw the evilness, the destructiveness, the sin in our world, and he wanted to keep that from his family, or he wanted to protect us behind locked and closed doors and keep the the, the sinful world out there, right? So my dad, he he runs out the front door, uh, not to a robber or someone, like, but a bunch of 13, 14-year-olds toilet papering our house, right? Which I can imagine was pretty terrifying for them to see, like, a police officer running out uh, the front door, right? That day, my dad thought his family was endangered, right? So he rushed to protect them, right? It's the reason he locked the door. He wanted to keep the sinful world out there. Last thing I'll say before I hand it over to Cody is this. God does the very same thing with his family. God knows the destructive power of sin, so he protects his family from it by placing it in hell eternally. I'll say it this way. God knows the destructive power of sin, so he protects his family from that in heaven by containing it far from us in hell, right? He locks the door, keeps sin away from his family because he understands with an exhaustive understanding, the true destructive power of sin. And so he keeps it away from his family because he loves his family. And so that really is the purpose there. Cool. Thank you. So you just divorce in hell? You thought that would be a good way to end it? She's the boss. She picked those for me. Wow. (laughs) All right. Divorce in hell. Well, there's really not that much better in here. That's true. It's it's not like there's he talks about roses in here. Okay. All right. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's throw it to some questions. So do you guys have any questions? We'll start here in the room first, and then um, we will uh, see if there's anybody. Everybody's afraid to ask a question about divorce or hell. I probably won't have the answer, so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, let me see if we have any online. Um, so I have a question. Why? So here's some, as you were talking about, specifically about hell, um, why is hell eternal? Because... An accurate view of a human being is an embodied soul, right? And so there's a material and an immaterial part of us. The immaterial part of us, um, what it means to be created in God's image is that you, from the moment of your conception and onward, will exist. You have an eternality in your soul. You exist always. Now, I wish, and there are some theologians uh, who believe in annihilationism, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem to be something that Jesus advocates for. And so it seems that hell is, a, is a, an eternal punishment, again, because if you sin against a maximally great being, the consequence is maximally greater nature. Hmm. So uh, I think we've uh, said a few times, uh, you didn't write this one. C.S. Lewis wrote this book, uh, The Great Divorce. Yeah, you guys knew each other. You guys went to school together. Um, That's funny. He was in Oxford. I know you didn't go to Oxford. Um, (laughs) They didn't get that because he was way back in the 30s and 40s. Okay, anyway, um, that in his book, uh, The Great Divorce, where he illustrates how people... Um, it's not a specific sin that then deserves eternal punishment. It's that they continue to just be who they're becoming. So uh, I think I said this on the weekend is um, heaven and hell is just a continuation of what you already do here. And so heaven is a continuation of worshiping Jesus, and then hell is a continuation of rejecting Jesus. And so these people, it's not like they did this one thing and now they're condemned to hell, although that could be uh, um, an explanation. It's that they continue to sin. And so they just sin for eternity by continuing to rebel against their creator and then getting further and further and further away from each other and away from God and eternal separation and things like that. So yeah, if they don't want God here, they're not going to want him there. Right. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Um, any other questions that we have from in the house? Yes, we got a question right here. When Jesus talks about divorce, does he maybe only mean it for the man and not the, the woman? Yeah, so here, uh, there's tons of masculine language in Scripture. 
um, because it's, it's, it's writing to a very specific time and culture where people in that time and culture would have an easier understanding of what was going on there. And so, no, 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 it's not saying that, like, uh, if, if, uh, that a woman couldn't uh, ask for a divorce if the husband was being sexually immoral or things like that. Uh, not at all. So it, it, it's, it's both side here. It uses the, the male language here, just like, um, yeah, it just uses male language here, but it isn't restrictive in some sense. Does that make sense? But on the other side of it, it also isn't like, well, if you're a woman, you can divorce your husband for any reason. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, the goal is restoration, reconciliation, <laughs> um, and if that can't be met through counseling and a handful of other things. It's not just giving up and just saying, I got, you know, it's hard work. But. So last week, I, I was surprised because we got a lot of um, a lot of questions about homosexuality, and that wasn't even a part of what we were talking about, but that just said to me, man, a lot of people are wrestling with, you know, maybe culturally what's happening and how do we connect that with our faith and things like that. Um, how does this verse connect with that topic? Just giving youth pastors the question. Um, yeah, so a few things. It says that a man will leave his mother and father and will leave and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They will become a cod. Within, within the uh, idea of a woman in, the, in God's mind, in, in, in a man, there are complementarian natures. We've taught on this before, right? Um, that in a marriage best reflect the nature and character of God himself. Um, and so, one, it speaks to a complementarian type of nature. Two, marriage is already defined here. It's not something we get to discover God's purpose for marriage. We do not get to define it. Why? Because it was an institution created by God, not by man. Marriage is an institution that is recognized by mankind, not one that was created by mankind. Yeah, right? so what Jesus does here is when he talks about marriage, so he's talking about what they understood in their day, which would have been a man and a woman, um, because there was no, I mean, there was understanding of homosexual relationships, but not same-sex marriage. And whenever there's questions about how should relationships work, especially romantic relationships, he always points original back intention. to the original intention. He says, don't look at what is, look at what ought to be. Absolutely. And so instead of, oh, here's what is, is people are getting divorced for any reason, he goes, uh-uh, time out. Let's look back to the beginning, and he here looks at the Genesis account, and he says, let's look at the way things were supposed to be, not the way things are. And if you really want to know what God thinks, look at how he designed them and intended them. So, man, big, big topic, but I wanted to throw that in because it kind of related May to I what we were talking about. Yep. Yeah, there's oftentimes like Christians, like, like non-Christians or Christians will say, like, oh, Jesus never spoke on gay marriage, and it almost like frazzles and we're left like perplexed on how to answer that. And the answer is he did. He spoke about it in here in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, where Jesus anchors his understanding in marriage in Genesis chapters uh, 1, 26, 27, and Genesis chapters 2, 26, um, where it was between a man and a woman. Secondly, if we're going to say that Jesus never spoke on marriage, we need to create the argument that Jesus and the father of independent wills. Jesus was there in Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he's the author of Leviticus, right, chapter 17 and 19 where it talks about gay marriage being an abomination. That's a powerful word. And so to say that Jesus never talked about it is to argue that with inside the Trinity, each members of the Trinity have independent wills. And if that's your argument, then you don't even have, you don't even have Christianity any longer. You can't separate what, uh, what was said in the Old Testament from what Jesus says in the New Testament because they anchor themselves in God's morality. Secondly, uh, you can't unanchor yourselves from what the rest of Scripture says. You, can't, you can no longer separate Jesus from the Father than you can Jesus from Paul. Romans chapter 1 Paul's very clear uh, uh, what a biblical mandate of marriage is, and he specifically uses the word homosexuality in there. 
Yeah, so one of the things that, you know, you, you're a youth pastor, you're doing young adults, and I did that for a decade, and this was a topic that came up uh, probably on a weekly basis, and um, one of the things that I would remind them of is, hey, so this is the hot topic of the day for you today, but guess what? It probably won't be in the future, and it definitely wasn't in the past, yeah. is there's these, uh, there's these, and what do you call them, the sins of the day? Fashion, fashionable sins of the day. Fashionable sins of the day, in which um, we 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 wrestle with this specific issue, and in the future, it may not be an issue anymore, yeah. and it wasn't in the past, and even in other places in the world, it wasn't an issue, and so we have to put that within our own cultural context and say, man, I just, I can't imagine why God would do this, and it's like, or he would recommend this, or he would design us this way, or whatever, and it's like, hey, you, you maybe need to step back and get a little bit bigger picture of, you know, your, your understanding of culture, and humanity and sexuality and things like that before we start making these big blanket statements um, about uh, God's intention. I've gotten a lot of questions on this, and I think one of the fundamental things that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around is they say that, um, one, by calling homosexuality a sin, we are saying that somebody can't have, that they have to live alone and that they can't have, a, that, that they have to have they ha an, an unfulfilling life. And I think that Jesus addresses this in chapter 19 when he, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about celibacy and the value of celibacy. Um, and so if you're going to say that, that somebody who has to live without sex then somehow can't have a fulfilling life or has to live alone, then you're saying that Jesus didn't have a fulfilling life and that Jesus lived alone. And he is clearly a model. Of, I mean, Jesus was, was not married. <laughs> Jesus never had sex, and he had the most purposeful and meaningful life of any human being that has ever lived. And so he holds the value of living in chastity, that this is one of the most high and holy callings that somebody can be called to. And Certainly, it is, it is a calling that requires great personal sacrifice, but it doesn't mean that somebody can't have meaning. Like, my goodness, have we really boiled down our lives that, that all of the meaning in life comes from sex? That says that our culture has spoken into us way too much. Um, so that's, why, you know, that, that's, that, that's kind of something I've been thinking on this week. Yeah, I have another C.S. Lewis illustration, but I'll leave it for another time. You have the one too, but it's the same one. The hamburger one. Yeah. yeah, the hamburger one. Heck yeah, right there. What's up? Okay, look it up. Um, all right, so real quick, since this is um, since this is our last week, and I want to uh, get everybody a turn to maybe get their final thoughts on Matthew. Um, what is the thing that stood out the most to you in the last five weeks, and um, what? Uh, what is something that um, you're going to do differently going forward because you learned this new thing in Matthew? So, Doyle, what's something new that you learned? New? New, or maybe, ref you know, you were reminded, reminded of? of? Yeah. There are no new sins. All sins focus around this statement, I know better. Because the sin of homosexuality says, I know better, because sex is more important uh, to me than God. And in the garden, the lie that Satan told Eve was, you'll know better. You will know. You can be like God because you'll just intuitively know. And so he said, well, how can, how, you know, somebody's born this way or whatever. It, do you know better? Does God know better? So here's my word for the week. I have two, two phrases for the week that kind of come out of this. One is this week is about being deeply humbled. The cross reminds us that God knows better and he does better. And I am only better as I trust in him. 
and, um, and the other one is profoundly grateful. And so I come away from reading in Matthew that God knows better. I am humbled by that, and yet he loves me still, and I am deeply, deeply grateful for that. Oh. And all of the surrounding arguments and offenses that people will have and all that stuff is just simply saying, I know better, and I don't. That's good. Adam, what do you got? Go to Matt first. Matthew? I was looking at it last week. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say, like, like, oftentimes I can send, spend time, like, in some of the epistles, and uh, whenever I read the actual words of Jesus, I am reminded that he is infinitely better than me, right? His words never fall short. He lives a life that's infinitely greater than anything that I could ever live for. And uh, I'm writing a Devo this, uh, this last week that you guys will read. And it's, it's a passage in Matthew 26 um, where Jesus is in... Jesus could have decided to do things a lot differently, but he, he illustrated his humility, his humanity, his love and compassion towards us. And so for me, he was in a place, uh, 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 called social positioning or uh, prestige or status, and he emptied himself of those things to become a servant. And so that reminds me that uh, I have to live a life of, uh, of being a servant as well. I have to be compassionate and loving. So many of the parables that Jesus talked about wasn't so that we would intellectually acquire new information. So we would love to, we'd learn to love what he learned, what he loves, and those people. And, and so for me, like, it's convicting in reading the words of Jesus, seeing the ways in which he loved and sacrificed towards people who were nothing like him, you know? And so for me, yeah, that's convicting. I need to learn to love people who are nothing like me better. Good. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say one of the things that I, I well, one, I'm just blown away by, uh, you know, we've just run through this whole gospel in five weeks. Like, people spend years and years and years studying this stuff. And I think looking at it as quickly as we have, just seeing, like, just the grand narrative of what God is doing and um, just the purposefulness that, that he had with every moment that he was here on, on the earth. Um, so that's just been one of those, like, big, like, that's just cool things for me. Um, but I think that one of the big things for me that this comes down to is it's so easy to just get in our heads and kind of be excited about, like, what we're learning. Um, but head knowledge doesn't save us. It's, it's the fruit. <laughs> like, we have, like, it just says over and over and over again, produce fruit. Like, go out and be the people that God has called you to be. Listen to God's rebuke of our lives and change and become the people that he has called us to be. Um, produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. That's good. So for me, um, I think every time I read through Matthew and I see this picture of Jesus emerge, it is so different than the American Jesus that um, I probably have bought into for a long time and, and see in a lot of places is um, his ministry. Like as you start to get into the cultural context and especially this last week where he goes in and he just preaches against all of these people and it's just so sub subversive. It's, it's almost mind-boggling it, it, how different he is than the culture around him and the message that he brought and the, 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 um, the kingdom that he was initiating. It's just, it is so different than, and I, I don't know, I know that my life doesn't look like that, and I sometimes wonder, does the church look like what he had intended, or are we so close to what culture looks like, 
in order to be relevant, and I think there's good aspects to it, but like his, the way that he challenged culture and people, but then also loved them, was just, is so other. And, and I'm not sure if we're anywhere in that ballpark. So, all right, final thoughts? It's a great week. It's a great week. This, this week is interesting for me every year because as we prepare for all the excitement of Easter, I allow myself to be a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not morbid, moribund maybe? A little bit heavy in the sense that it really did. So all the arguments, well, Jesus is wrong, God is wrong, but here's a person going to the cross for me. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. And silly little arguments kind of, not all arguments are silly, but a lot of them are. And a lot of the ones I have in my own head are kind of silly, uh, ego-driven or whatever. And I just, they all kind of drop off. And I just have, in the Protestant church, we don't have Jesus on the cross in our worship centers. But this week of the year, I kind of wish we did. Um, uh, because it just reminds me the incredible gift and the incredible price that was paid. And for me, this is a week where I, I try to spend a little extra time alone, a little extra time just being grateful, even thinking a little bit about where I might have been. Uh, not too much, it's too depressing, but where I might have been and just being deeply, deeply grateful. Yeah. So I think this week uh, is not only a special week, obviously, for us in our faith, but for us as a church, because we get to go back into um, our auditorium on this Good Friday, which we're so excited about. And so, uh, yes, we have all been looking forward to that and then to celebrate Easter together. So um, please uh, make sure you come. And I think I think we're already full for our Good Friday service, which is maybe I think you can get on the waiting list there. Sorry about that. Um, but you can definitely be a part of our Easter services. So we will see you guys this weekend. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.